The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you, Tony, worship team, children's choir. I'm Bill Garner. I'm the uh, ministry leadership pastor here at Harvest Church, and uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Uh, honored to be here as, as well. Uh, believe me, it's humbling to stand up here and to, to follow uh, Ken and Vaughn and Steve and uh, Ronnie Stevens and Dave Newman and Vincent and Damon and JB and Josiah and all the great preachers that, that stand up here week after week and open God's word for us to, uh, to look into so that it can have its impact on us. You guys enjoying the series, this, this uh, Revelation series? It's awesome. It's a really good series. We're going to talk about the church at Thyatira today. Uh, I've got most of my family over here to the right. They're praying hard. They're the ones with their heads down praying right now for what's going to... They're actually praying for a shorter message in the first hour. So I might want to throw up some prayers on that right now for all of us. So uh, one of the things I want to say about this series is, uh, although the book of Revelation is shrouded in mystery and there's so many... Um, prophetic teachings here and a lot of different views on what's going on in terms of the end times. It's clear for all of us, though, that uh, these messages to the churches are letters, they're open letters that are given to the churches uh, that talk about specific problems that these churches are having. But those, those uh, problems that they're having in those churches are not just limited to what's going on there. These are letters for the ages. They're open let- letters for the ages. And, and we're to learn something from what's being talked about uh, in, in these letters. Now, today, uh, we're going to talk about some, some uh, danger, some things that are happening uh, in the church at Thyatira. Uh, they're in danger. And when I use the word danger here, I'm talking about grave danger. There's trouble here brewing in the church at Thyatira. And uh, as I said just a second ago, uh, some of this trouble, uh, while we're going to look at the church at Thyatira, uh, we have to also be open to considering that uh, what's happening there and some of the issues they're having could be issues that we're facing. And so whenever I look at a text like this, um, I have to always be open-minded about my perspective and say to myself, it could be possible that this, this applies to me. This is something that I might be struggling with myself. And I'd like to ask you to do that too. As we look at God's word today, have an open mind and heart uh, and ask yourself as we go through the text, is this something that applies to me? Let God do his work uh, in your heart and in your mind. Uh, In fact, we're told in this text that Jesus himself searches our heart and he searches our mind. He has that type of vantage point over us so that he can see what's going on in our lives, in our hearts, in the secret places of our hearts. And he's telling the church at Thyatira that today, that uh, even though the things that are there are hidden so deeply uh, so that none of them can see what's going on, uh, we we recognize the things that are happening in that church are impacting that church in negative ways. And he's going to point some of these things out to them. Now, this week I was reading through the book of Proverbs. Uh, I didn't read through the entire book. I was just on chapter 21, as a matter of fact, at verse 21. And it says this, and I want you to note this in your notes. Verse 21 of Proverbs 21. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the strongholds in which they trust. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the strongholds in which they trust. You know the strongholds that are hardest to bring down? are our own personal strongholds that we put our trust in that have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel or God's word. 
The idols we create for ourselves are the most difficult strongholds for us to tear down. But a wise man, a wise man or woman, will scale that wall and tear those things down. At the end of the passage, we're going to read that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has in the seven churches. That's talking to us. It's talking to us. God has something to say to you today from his word. Are you going to hear what he has to say? As his spirit prompts your heart, be willing to do this. This could be applying to me. This could be something I need to hear. There are some strongholds in my life, and I need to tear those things down. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as we get into your word here, we pray, God, that you would illuminate your word in our hearts and our minds so that we can see clearly what it is that you're doing and want to do in our lives. Uh, Help us to tear down these strongholds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's read. Stand together as we read from Revelation. We're in the book of Revelation. We're reading about the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. That's correct. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works and your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the what? The mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on, I do not lay on any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. Let's see. Let's have a seat, please. The church at Thyatira lay on a road that was connected to Pergamum and Sardis. We've got a slide up here that you can take a look at that will help you with understanding where it is. It's in what's known as uh, current-day Turkey, Asia, and it's right up there near the top of that loop uh, next to Pergamum and Sardis. It was a uh, commercial town. It, the trade came from the east uh, all the way through, or through Asia and all the way to the coastlines, Uh, So there was a lot of commerce that was done here uh, in this city. It was the least known of all the seven cities, but its distinctions were that it had a large number of trade guilds, and it was very important and critical that if you wanted to be successful in business and in economics, you had to be a member of one of these guilds. 
Now, a guild was like a fraternity. Uh, sometimes it acted as a uh, secret society or cartel or trade union. And it was very good business practice to be part of one of these guilds. If you weren't associated with one of these guilds, it could be crippling to you economically for your business. Their influence on civil life was, was considerable. The, uh, they had a regular meeting, or regular meetings, and in these meetings there was some uh, worship uh, of, of the emperor involved, as well as some of the local deities. Uh, but their local deity was, was someone who was not very well known. In fact, if you were to search him on the internet, you wouldn't find very many pictures of, of their local de- of deity. But they also had uh, all types of sexual moralities going on at these meetings. Uh, but not to participate in these meetings or to be involved in these guilds, uh, you did this at your own economic peril. So you kind of had to, uh, uh, to, 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 to get along, to, to go along in economic terms. There was no religion that played a major role in Thyatira. Uh, Thyra. It was, wasn't a major center of Caesar worship or Greek worship. Uh, and as I said, the local god there was virtually unknown. The name Thyatira itself means sacrifice of labor or odor of affliction. And, and what that signifies is that there was a lot going on there economically. Uh, it it kind of smelled like success. Uh, it smelled like prosperity. It smelled something very appealing to uh, the, the commerce trade and the economic development of the city. We know a little bit about this city. The, probably the church there was started uh, by Lydia. Now, Lydia, uh, was in, she was converted in Acts chapter 16 in Paul's ministry. And uh, Lydia, was a, uh, she was a dyer. She, was, she dyed wools and linens and purple. Uh, they had a type of purple dye in Thyatira that was much cheaper uh, than the Phoenician dyes, but, but just as good, apparently. And uh, she, traded, she was a dye, a dye maker. So she traded in dyes and, and uh, did all those type things, but probably had a, a huge influence in starting the church there at Thyatira. At the time of this writing, Thyatira was uh, a growing city. Uh, now, uh, she reached her full impact in the second and third centuries, but at this point, she was a growing city, and the church there at Thyatira was thriving. But Christ did, in, in, in our uh, text, uh, identify a major stronghold at Thyatira that came from within the church. This was not something that was coming externally. They weren't being persecuted necessarily at this time externally. Most of the persecution was coming internally. Uh, The trouble they had, the danger was coming uh, from within. And and the strong movement was led by a woman named Jezebel and probably pleading for some type of compromise in terms of their their business practices and standards uh, hoping possibly to, uh, to dilute what they were doing through in, involving uh, the world's uh, uh, concepts, philosophies, and so forth. Now, this is the longest letter of the seven letters that we'll read, uh, and probably the most difficult, and that's why Kenan made me preach this today, uh, I'm sure. But it was the longest of the seven letters, and it's written uh, probably the most unimportant of all the seven cities, but it's, uh, the problems they had were far from unimportant as it relates uh, to who we are. Okay, so let's get into this text and let's start with uh, looking at the description that is given. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service. It says, the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, to talk about uh, 
the description of, of Jesus, the Son of God, in this passage describes him as having eyes like fire and feet like bronze. Uh, possibly what it's saying is it's a reference back to Daniel chapter, chapter 6. And in Daniel chapter 6, or chapter 10, verse 6, we read more about this description and what it means. Uh, to have those type of eyes probably signifies that, uh, that Christ is, uh, there's an anger that's burning internally. He's angry at something that's taking place in this church. And to have the, the, the eyes of fire also uh, signifies that possibly uh, he's able to look internally into what's going on, to penetrate, that's a gazing, penetra- uh, uh, penetrating gaze that, uh, with which he's looking into what's happening in the minds and the hearts of the, of the church at Thyatira. The bronze feet basically signifies that there's some type of, of judgment coming against uh, Thyatira. Now, this is the first time in the letters where the Son of God is used, and that probably indicates judgment as well. Now, how'd you like to get that as an introduction from a le- to a letter from Christ? There's judgment coming. I see what's going on here. You can't hide what's happening from me, and I see it, and I'm coming to do something about it. Not a soothing tranquilizer, uh, very... Very upsetting, very uh, severe. Now, he starts out in the letter by commending what's happening at the church. And then there's, there's, there's some very good things, some very healthy things happening at the church at Thyatira. Some things that the church is commended for. Uh, we've got a slide on that. There's, there's, uh, they're commended for their love. The church at Thyatira was commended for their love. Uh, I see your works, your love. Now, in the Greek, there are all kinds of different words for love that we won't get into this morning. But there is one lo- uh, word for love that's the highest form, and that's what? The word agape. Agape love, which is an unconditional type of love. The church at Thyatira had this unconditional love that they exhibited toward each other. They also had faith. Faith. Now, the, word, uh, the Greek word for faith uh, means to, uh, to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. So they had this type of faith that where they were completely trusting uh, Jesus Christ. They had complete faith in him alone for the salvation that they, that they were uh, enjoying in him. Uh, it's, uh, this, this word faith is something that's important to us as believers. Uh, it was something that started the uh, Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther was re- uh, looking at Romans 1.17 he said, the just shall live by faith and uh, recognize that our life is, is fully to be lived by the faith that we have in Christ and him alone. They also had endurance, a patient type of endurance. In Romans chapter 5, verse 4, we, we see that, the, the, uh, that endurance is, is formed through, uh, through struggles, through uh, our, our trials. And through the trials that that church had gone through and their struggles, they had learned how to endure. And their endurance was producing something else. Their endurance was producing character in their lives. They also had the work of service. This is the word that we get the, the word deacon from. And it means that they were, the, it's the action of serving. They weren't just talking about service or being on a team. They were talking about serving and doing this. They were actually getting involved in what was going on. And so those are very commendable things that were taking place in the church and then Jesus also says, he says, these things are stronger when the, than when they first started. 
In other words, there's kind of a trending upward tra- trajectory that, that the, the church is growing. It looks healthier externally. There's great love for each other. There's great faith. They're enduring in their, in their uh, current society. They're also serving. So there's this fantastic stuff happening in the church. And then we get to the condemnation where he says this in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Now, for the purposes of the day, uh, we're going to talk about tolerate. When I use the word tolerate, I'm going to use the definition that it means uh, that, we are, that, that someone is capable of continued exposure without adverse reaction to toxins, drugs, or something. And so a person, uh, to, be toler- to tolerate something means that uh, I can, I can, I can um, capable of exposure to whatever it is I'm trying to tolerate uh, without any type of adverse reaction, but yet what I'm tolerating is something that I normally wouldn't tolerate. It's something that would normally have an effect or impact on me. Now, uh, here in Memphis, uh, we have all sorts of allergies. Does anybody suffer with allergies here in Memphis? One of the blessings of our city is the allergies that we suffer under. Uh, my daughter, Becky, uh, went to the allergist this year uh, to, because she was struggling with hay fever or pollen or something. We didn't know what it was, or the dog, or her children or something. But she was, she was suffering with, with allergies. And what they do is, and, and when you're trying to determine what you're, you're allergic to, what they do is they give you allergens, things that you might be allergic to in very small doses to find out what, how you react to those very small doses or whatever it might be to determine what you're allergic to. And once they figure that out, the process of, of determining uh, what your, you know, the treatment for allergies is, is that you start to get allergy shots. Now, what's an allergy shot? An allergy shot has, uh, it's, uh, it's full of the allergen that, that you have allergic reali- uh, reactions to. And they give you these shots on a fairly regular basis, like, like one a week for a month or two months. And then as you become accustomed to that dosage and you don't have as much reaction, they give you a shot uh, once every two weeks. And then once you get used to that, they start giving you shots less frequently until, guess what, after three or four or five years, you have no reaction. You can tolerate that, the thing, that very thing that you were allergic to once. Now, usually these things are, are given to you, administered uh, by professionals, by doctors. You go to the office of a professional and you're administered uh, the allergy shots. Why? Because there's always the possibility, especially initially, that you might react severely and have an anaphylactic shock, that you might have some type of, of, of life-threatening uh, reaction to the allergy. So they want a professional there. You kind of see the picture here? What's happening here in this church is that they're tolerating something that they should be allergic to. They should be allergic to. But what's probably happened is it's been, they've been exposed to in small doses for a while by someone who claims to be an expert, someone who has a following, someone who's important, someone who other people uh, deem credible. Until after a while of being in that situation, they no longer react to this at all. They can be exposed to whatever it was, the false teachings of, 
of Jezebel or whoever it might have been with absolutely zero reaction. Why? Because now they tolerate the very thing that they used to be allergic to, that there used to be a reaction to. You know, um, we've talked about some of the idols that are worshipped, some of the things that are talked about in the book of Revelation. I know last week Kenan was talking about uh, worshipping snakes or something. Remember that? And uh, part of the whole process in worshiping these things was to have an overnight stay, extended stay in one of these snake uh, chapels or something, and you'd sleep and let them crawl all over you. Guys, that one doesn't appeal to me. All right? That's not something I go, wow, I struggle with that one. That's a tough one. Or how about human sacrifice? As far as I know, that hasn't happened any time in my lifetime ever where that's something I would have wanted to be involved with. But in the context of their culture and where they lived, they had struggles that were as real to them as the idols that we struggle with in the context of our culture. So what are the things that we struggle with? A lot of the things we struggle with we consider to be fairly uh, respectable. You know, Jerry Bridges in his book, uh, Respectable Sins, and he's one of my heroes. I love the stuff that Jerry Bridges writes. He says there are all sorts of respectable sins. Things like ungodliness, how do you recognize that? Unthankfulness, kind of internal. Anxieties, don't see those. Frustration, discouragement, or discontentment. Pride, that's a tough one to detect. Selfishness, see it sometimes fleshed out. Impatience, only when I'm driving. Irritability, irritability only when I'm driving. Anger, only when I'm driving. Um, judgmentalism, mm, quite often, you'll never see it. Sins of the tongue, sometimes you hear them, but they're justified most of the time, right? They're sins of the tongue. People need to hear some of those things. Uh, lack of self-control, envy, and jealousy. These are all things that we struggle with, right? These are respectable sins. Typically, these are the sins behind the sins that we do see, okay? Listen, I remember years ago, my mother was, uh, uh, my dad called. We were all headed toward a men's retreat um, in, in, in uh, Middle Tennessee. And my dad called and he said, he said uh, Bill, I'm not going to be able to go on this men's retreat with you guys. Uh, your, your mother uh, has, um, they, they've done some studies and, and done some internal uh, examinations. And they found that she's got some spots that we're concerned about internally. And uh, we all ended up staying home from that men's retreat and kind of helping my dad through that week and finding out what was wrong with my mother. Well, they found out eventually that she had some spots on her brain. They were really concerned about those. And they went in and looked at them and found out inoperable, terminal brain cancer. Gave her 10 months to live. And she, she lived about 10 months, and that was it. And I've often wondered, I've often wondered this. I've often wondered, what if we'd found those spots earlier? What if we'd known that some, some of the stuff that was happening was a result of what was going on inside her. Now, I know nobody lives forever, okay? We're all, no, nobody's getting out alive, okay? We're not going to live forever. But I wonder, I wondered if there had been a treatment earlier, if she'd still be around today, or at least for a little while longer. Same type of thing as you're looking at the sin that's killing this church at Thyatira. I wonder if they really knew, if they really could see what they were doing. I wonder if they could really see if it would still, if they'd still tolerate the things that they were looking at, the things that they could actually see. If they could have seen it from God's perspective, who looked into the minds and hearts of what was going on. So what was going on? 
what was happening in that church and how does that apply to us? How does that impact us in any way? I think first we have to go into who, who is Jezebel and, and what is she teaching? Now, I, I don't know if Jezebel was real in this story. She was a real person or if she just represented something that was, that was wicked. Very few people, uh, if you know who Jezebel was, she was the uh, queen of Israel and she was Ahab, Ahab's wife. Uh, she's not described in flattering terms in the Old Testament, so much so that most people don't use that as one of the names for their children. If, if you're named Jezebel, see your parents. Um, but, but if she was real, I, I'm not sure. But I, I do know this. Uh, what, she, what she did in a nutshell that was so wicked in, in the kingdom of, of Israel was that she would, as they went in and conquered other peoples, she would embrace the gods of these other peoples and bring what they worshipped and kind of co-mingle it into the worship of Israel. Uh, it's called syncretism, where you take, you take objects that you like that fit your theological bent and you use those inside of your theological bent. You, you kind of can, t- and, and, and believe me, this can happen today. It happens in some uh, uh, real severe ways in third world countries where they take voodoo and other things and they make it a part of, of uh, Christian practice and worship. And, and that's very obvious, okay? When you see people slaughtering chickens and stuff like that, you're going, that's probably not part of what we believe. But in a very subtle way, we do fold in non-scriptural teaching into our Christianity. It affects us. It impacts us. Just like Jezebel did, she brought things in because she, why did she do that? She did it because she thought maybe that would make their kingdom more prosperous. Maybe she was anti-God. There were lots of reasons why she did this. But I'd say that in, in, in terms of who she was and what she was doing, that she was actually, she was doing something that was immoral. And she was leading the Christians toward, down, down a pathway of worshiping idols. Uh, was it physical immorality? Probably some of that involved in what was going on. But at the very worst of it, it was spiritual infidelity. Infidelity to God is expressed in terms of like fornication and adultery in the Bible. Uh, Israel in the, in the Old Testament is called the bride of God. In the New Testament, we're called the bride of Christ. Christ referred to a generation to come as an adulterous and unfaithful generation. So why were they unfaithful? What was unfaithful about what was going on in the church? What's unfaithful in our lives in terms of our commitment to Christ as his bride? What are things in our lives that are, that are troubling us or at least things that we're tolerating in our lives? You know, the, the writer here, the writer uh, records that two times the word repent is used for Jezebel and what she was doing. He gave them a chance to repent, and two times it says they wouldn't do it. And because of that, there was going to be just uh, judgment. Uh, repentance is a tough thing. It's hard to repent, especially of things that are hard for us to recognize, especially of things that we love and that we worship or that impact our lives. It's hard for us to give up things that we're tied to. You know, there's a great passage that deals with repentance. Uh, that I wanted to, you guys can look at it later, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. It talks about what repentance is. It tells us that repentance first is a sorrow, 
without regret. In other words, when you give it up, you're good with that. You're glad it's gone. You're glad to move away from it. It talks about earnestness. There's a, you're sincere. You're sincere when you're sorry. When you're giving back whatever it is to the Lord, you're scaling that city and tearing down that stronghold, there's a sincerity to it. It's not just lip service, promises made. There's an eagerness to clear yourself. I can't believe I've done this. I'm going to do something completely different from this point on. There's a fear. In other words, there's a recognition that, that if you're to continue along that path, it's dangerous. It's like looking over, like standing on a ledge. There's a rock in, it's called Sunset uh, Rock in Chattanooga. Some of you may have been on it. It's literally, you're on flat ground, and you look over like you're looking over the edge of the stage, and it's a big drop. It's the type of thing you go, wow, I'm afraid. <laughs> if I fell over that cliff, I would die. It's that type of fear. It's also a longing, like a heart wants to change. There's something that you're going to recognize. There's something that needs to change, a longing. There's zeal. In other words, there's enthusiasm to do something different. And then there's a proving yourself innocent, that you want things to be different, and you're going to prove just by your life, not just with your words, that things from this point on will be different. That's what repentance is. And you can take a look at that later this afternoon if you want to. It sounds kind of negative, but if you compare it with something like Ephesians chapter 2, which is the positive side of it, uh, it's really good. Uh, so, again, what are the deep things that we need to repent of? What was God calling the church at Thyatira to repent of? He tells us it's their sexual immorality and their idol worship. They're actually called the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. Have you ever thought about that? you ever seen this term before? The deep things of Satan. What could those things be? Now, I know in the, in the Old Testament, if you read Genesis 3.1, what does it say about Satan? It says that Satan was more crafty, that he was subtle, that he was subtle. So I think the deep things of Satan are the things that are subtle, the hidden things. One of the first stories in the Bible where there's sin involved other than Adam and Eve and their fall, and that was a pretty crafty maneuver that Satan pulled there too where he kind of twisted the truth in his whole temptation thing. One of the other stories is the story of Cain and Abel. You know the story. Cain and Abel, two brothers. One was doing something that God commended him for. The other said uh, he, he was not commended for. In fact, God took Cain aside and he said, he said, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not sin, uh, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? Things will be different. But if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's hiding at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. So I would say the deeper things of Satan probably has something to do with things that are subtle, the crafty things, the things that are hard for us to see in our own lives. I'm sure the church at Thyatira didn't think, I mean, look at how they were commended for their love, for their faith, for their service, for their patient endurance. They were growing. They were stronger than when they started. And here they are being condemned, or God holds this against them, that they're idol worshipers, that they're involved in sexual immorality. They probably didn't see it. Again, the culture of the day, they were hiding in the culture, the sins were hiding in the culture of the day so that they couldn't see what was going on. So what about the sins of our day? You know, Ernest Becker, who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1974, he's a, Jew, a Jewish American cultural anthropologist. He said that he thought that, the, that, that in our culture, in the, our culture, similar to Thyatira, that, uh, that God would be replaced with sex and romance. Some credibility to that, I'd say. 
that God would be replaced with sex and romance. I think that concept uh, seems to have become a little bit more twisted with, uh, because now it's mixed with some type of, of bizarre elevation of personal freedom, you know? So it's really all messed up. But I think there's another, th- uh, another uh, trouble that we face internally. Frederick Nietzsche had a very different theory. He wrote that with, uh, with the absence of God growing in Western culture, that God would one day be replaced with, you ready for this? Money. That God would be replaced with money. Remember I told you, Thyatira, strong economy, city of commerce, odor of affliction. There was this something come up, up from the city that smelled like success. That was driving all these people to be involved in these guilds. What was it? They didn't be left behind economically. There was obviously a struggle going on. What was Jezebel teaching? It doesn't matter. She was throwing idols at them to do what? To keep them, to keep them in a place where they were crippled, unproductive, unfruitful, where they weren't yielding the type of fruit in their, in their culture that they needed to because they were following these idols. They were distracted. They were tolerating these idols. Tim Keller, a book that we're going to read in our next track in the gospel journey that as we read the book of Acts, we're going to read a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in his book, he says this. Look at the slide. He says, innumerable writers and thinkers have been pointing out the culture of greed that has been eating away at our souls and has brought about the economic collapse. Yet no one thinks that change is around the corner. Why? It's because greed and avarice are especially hard to see in ourselves, aren't they? Very difficult to see in ourselves. Greed hides itself from its victim. The the money God's modus operandi includes blinding our own hearts. Blinding our own hearts to this. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex in the Bible. But you talk more, but we talk more about sexual immorality than we do greed. Yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of being greedy. That's why it's called the seductive power of money. He goes on to say that idolaters do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, they obey them. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, looking with jealousy on those who have more money than they do. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. Tim Keller and Counterfeit Gods. Think that's true? I think it is. I very rarely have had anybody come to me and say, hey, you know what? I'm way too greedy. I'm way too materialistic. No one recognizes it. Why? Why is that? There's a seductive power to it. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12. He says, watch out. Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against what? Be on your guard against what? Greed. All kinds of greed. Wow. (laughs) Against greed. All types of greed. He doesn't say, watch out. Be careful about adultery. You know why he doesn't say that? Because you know, when you're in bed with somebody else's wife, you're not sitting there uh, wondering, thinking to yourself, wow, this might be adultery. You know it is, because you're there. But greed and avarice, very rarely do you see those. Those to me, those type of sins, are the deep things of Satan. A subtle twist, a subtle infusion of what is worshiped in our culture and it becomes a stew, a, syncret- a syncretic stew. Power, money, individual- individualism, you name it. Now maybe the idol here is sex, maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's politics, maybe it's education. 
Maybe it's something really good like your family or maybe even moralism. I don't know what it is, but there's an idol here that's keeping these people, that's putting them in danger. And they're told to repent. They're told to get away from it. They're given the warnings to get away from it. You know, I was at a friend of mine's house this week as we, as we close today. And uh, he was sharing with me uh, a video that he was, had seen on the internet. And, and I, had to, I had to completely agree uh, watching this video. And I want to share it with you. Not the video. I'm going to tell you what it said. He said, he said this, this. In this video, it said this. It was a warning. The warning was that many people I know, many people I know, many, young and old, have grown weary and they've lost heart. And why have we grown weary and why have we lost heart? And I'll tell you why. Because we've put our attention, our focus, we've fixed our eyes on a political system or a leader or the economy or we keep remembering the good old days when things were different. And I'll tell you what we gotta do, we gotta stop that right now. We gotta stop it, and I'll tell you why. Because there's a generation behind that looks at us and they're taking their cue from us and that fear that you exude is causing you to lose your credibility and your witness, I'm telling you, right now it is. What they're hearing from you, this younger generation, what they're hearing from you is that if we don't have the right person in office, but they're hearing from me. If we don't have the right person in office, if we don't have our religious freedoms like we used to, if the right policies aren't in place, if the right court justices are not elected, the whole thing's gonna come unraveled. It's all gonna come unraveled. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, nothing, according to this text, could be further from the truth. Politics matter, don't get me wrong. Policies matter our jobs matter, the economy matters, our families matter, but nothing, nothing matters more than your faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing. John tells us, he tells us this, he says this in this chapter on this book, this letter to Thyatira, hold fast until Jesus comes. Hold fast until Jesus comes. God keeps his promises He's coming. He's going to come. Nothing, nothing can thwart his plan. Nothing will thwart the plan of God. He's going to come. He says here, hold fast what you have until I come. Conquer and keep my works until the end. And I'll give you the morning star. Who's the morning star? The morning star is Jesus. He's coming back. He's going to give us himself. He's coming again. We have nothing to fear So all of us and all of you who are scaring all these people, stop. Stop it now. Stop, please. We've got a model for the next generation that God is in control. He has not fallen asleep. He's in control. He can be trusted. He is faithful. Go ahead and get involved in the culture. Go ahead and get involved in politics. Go ahead and join the PTA. But never put your thing, hope, in these things. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a, mo- there's a reminder as we come to the table now. There's a reminder of what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he says this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now, here it is. This is the gospel. It's preached to you, and you received it, and you stand in it, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached, unless your faith was in vain. 
He said, I delivered to you at first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Amen. Drop the mic. It happened. He raised him from the dead. He appeared to many. And now we, are, we have this message of reconciliation that we can take. There is a hope. There is a Savior. He is going to return. So let's cast our idols aside. I don't know what they are. God knows yours. I don't know yours. They're not, I don't, some of mine are hard to determine. But we all have them. We need to repent. We need to repent. So what I want to do in this time that we have as we come to the table is just do a little reflection in your own life. Uh, the hardest things for you to see, the hardest things for us to see, the deceptions we have, our self-deceptions. What are our idols? What is it that God's calling us to lay aside, to repent from? What's keeping you from being that ambassador for Christ that he wants you to be? What's keeping you from growing and learning and serving the Lord right now? What's keeping, that, what's keeping you from, from your relationship of intimacy that he wants you to have? Throw it down. Throw it down. Take a little time. Reflect right there. I'll tell you about the table. The table is open. If you think you're worthy, you're not. There's nobody worthy. There's nobody worthy, and that's part of understanding. We're coming to the table because we're not worthy. We need a Savior. We need to be reminded that Jesus Christ gave his blood for us. He gave his life for us so that we can live. And that's what the table does. It reminds us every week. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not what we did. It's what he did. He is going to return, and we're going to do this until he comes back. Take a few minutes just to think about where you are in your life and what's going on and ask God to search your mind, search your heart, do his work in your life and see what he pulls up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that he would convict us. Pray, Lord, that uh, your word would convict us. If it's not your word and it's just the words of a man, it has no convicting power, it has no staying power. Lord, where you convict a man or a woman, that person remains convicted. So convict people's hearts and minds, not just while they're here, but until they rid themselves of the idols that have polluted their lives and they're tolerating right now. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.